Thought Leadership from PwC. Welcome to PwC's Accounting Podcast. I'm Heather Horn. Thanks for joining me as we continue our Tuesday series in which one of our all-star guests takes over the podcast, picking the topics for the month, and joining me on all the episodes. For the month of June, our takeover guest is Angela Ferguson, a partner in PwC's national office who specializes in revenue and compensation. We continue to see more and more companies having to navigate the accounting for software costs. And it's not just software companies. And this is because across all industries, companies continue to incorporate some element of software into their product, into their offerings. They're focused because every company has software. That was Angela, joined again this week by Mike Coleman, a partner in PwC's national office. They join me for an episode packed with helpful advice for U.S. companies navigating the accounting for software costs. Angela and Mike walk us through today's guidance, including some key reminders related to both internal use and external use software, and guidance specific to cloud computing arrangements. They then turn to the FASB's project and evaluate its potential impacts for all types of companies. Listen in for Angela and Mike's insights. Angela, Mike, welcome back to the podcast this week. And I think this is a great follow on to last week's episode when we were talking about principal versus agent, because the examples we were giving last week were around software. And so now this week, we're talking about software costs. But Angela, with all of that said, my guess is that is not why you picked this topic. So why did you pick this as a topic? So two primary reasons. The first reason is because we continue to see more and more companies having to navigate the accounting for software costs. And it's not just software companies. And this is because across all industries, companies continue to incorporate some element of software into their product, into their offerings. Just think about when you buy a car today, you know, how much software is included in, in that car, even, even in your refrigerator probably has some software in it. And this is obviously not a new trend, but for many, the costs related to software, the, that software element continue to become more material. And then on the purchasing side, companies are also continuing to purchase software or software as a service or SaaS, which we'll refer to throughout this podcast for their own internal use. And this includes investments in digital transformation, which is a buzz phrase that we've been hearing a lot lately. And that includes moving from what companies historically had as maybe an on-prem software solution to a SaaS solution. And that can involve incurring significant costs to make that transformation. The second reason why we're talking about this today is because the FASB is currently working on a standard setting project where they're reassessing the guidance for software costs and could you know, result in some significant changes to the guidance in this area. And then Mike, maybe bringing you into the conversation, why is the FASB focused on this right now? Yeah, so they're focused, as Angel said, because every software has, every company has software, Um, but that trend from moving more and more from a traditional on-prem software to SaaS does have a big impact on the accounting. Um, and we'll get into that accounting in a bit in, in, in a minute, 
But there is a real big difference between having a software asset and then having a service, which is what says is. It's really getting and receiving a service. So there's a, a big difference in that accounting. Um, so again, we'll talk about that in a second. The other thing is um, when the guidance was written, the guidance is decades old now, and when the guidance was written, software was developed very differently. Um, and that process has changed over time, basically making the current guidance not really reflective of how software was developed. So that's part of the reason that FASB's taking on the project. All right. And definitely we've had some past podcasts um, that have dealt with even older guidance that we're not revisiting, things like FAS 5 about commitments and contingencies. And I do think Mike made a good case for, for why this needs to be addressed. But I guess, Angela, do we have any insight into the, why the FASB actually did take this on? Well, when they issued their invitation to comment as part of their agenda consultation, so relooking at what was on their agenda, and this was back in 2021, if you recall, many respondents pointed out some of the things that Mike just talked about. You know, this guidance is no longer fit for purpose. It doesn't really address how software is developed today. It gets potentially not um, an answer that's intuitive when you look at the comparison between software and SaaS. So a lot of folks made the case for why the FASB should reassess this guidance. And it's a little bit of an unusual situation because I think both preparers and users largely agree that this is guidance that should be, you know, needs to be updated. Um, And also I'd point out that the FASBs had a research project on the broader topic of intangibles for a while. And some board members and staff have commented that, um, software costs is almost like a, a test case for how to think about intangibles as part of that broader project. All right. Very helpful. So definitely want to get into the status of the FASB project, but maybe first, I think it'd be helpful to go through how the guidance works today. So Angela. Sure. So today we have two models for in the software cost guidance. The first model is for software that will be sold, leased, or marketed to customers. And this is in ASC 985-20. The second model is for software that will be used solely for internal use. And that's in ASC 350-40. So if we kind of compare and contrast these two models at a high level, for software that's being externally marketed or sold to customers, costs are initially expensed as R&D until technological feasibility is established. And after that point, qualifying costs are capitalized until general release of the software to customers. However, for many companies, they've concluded that that technological feasibility threshold, it isn't met until really right before they're releasing the software to customers. So often they've concluded that the amount of cost that would be capitalized is is basically immaterial. So you often see companies not capitalizing costs under that model. 
And Angela, that is because basically you don't really, in many cases, they wouldn't really know if it's going to be feasible until you reach that final point when it kind of all comes together. Well, in the, in the details of the guidance, there's a couple of ways you would you might look at how you've reached technological feasibility. And many companies have said, well, we don't really meet that criteria until basically right before we're about to send it out the door, right? So you know, that's basically how things tend to work under today's development process. All right. And then how about if you have the software for internal use? So if the software is solely for internal use, so you're not marketing it or planning to market it to customers, then qualifying costs generally are capitalized basically after planning is complete. So this is usually an earlier point in time than that technological feasibility threshold that we talked about for externally marketed software. So that means, and this is obviously very, very general statement, yes. but generally that means that you end up capitalizing more costs under the internal use only software model. And then I would just point out, in addition to that threshold being different, there are differences in how the guidance works for amortizing the resulting asset and then how you test it for impairment. All the day two accounting is also a little bit different between the two models. Wow. Okay. So that's definitely a, a lot to think about. And I think intuitively maybe on the surface doesn't seem totally consistent. So it can see why it might be helpful to look at this. But then Angela, where I actually thought you were going to go is that we've previously, I think even the three of us have talked about the cloud computing guidance. So how does that fit in here? Right. So a few years ago, the FASB issued guidance that requires companies to apply that internal use software model also to costs that a company incurs when they're implementing a cloud computing arrangement. So, for example, if you're implementing a new ERP system, but instead of having it on-prem, it's going to be accessed remotely, so it's a SaaS offering, then you, you don't actually have a software asset to record because mm -hmm. you're not buying software asset. However, you're likely to incur costs to implement that SaaS solution and those implementation costs you would potentially capitalize under the internal use software model. All right, that's helpful. So then, Mike, I know you talk to a lot of companies and engagement teams dealing with these issues. What are some of the challenges that you're seeing well, so the, um, the first thing to think about is the challenges are different whether you're the software vendor, company that's selling the software, mm -hmm. providing the SaaS, or the software buyer, just the customer of those. Because software cost comes into play for both of those, mm -hmm. th those, those entities. So the more significant challenges are those for the software vendor. And that's both whether you're providing it on a licensed on-prem basis or via SaaS. Okay, the two issues that a software vendor has to deal with is really determining which cost model applies, um, and then secondly, how to apply that guidance to to today's development process. Because again, those models are written for mm -hmm. very old development processes. So let's start with which cost model applies. Okay, so the interesting thing there is. You have to figure that out before you start developing the software because it's based or, or predicated upon what you're going to do with the software. So if you're going to, you have to look at your marketing plan. And if you have a marketing plan where you're going to 
license and sell the software externally, you would follow the external guidance. If you have a marketing plan where you're only going to use it internally, then you would say, I'm going to follow that internal guidance. One of the tricks with that, though, is possession of the software. The reason I say that is commonly entities that develop software say, I'm going to develop the software and I'm going to monetize it or market it through SaaS. Mm -hmm. So that, as Angela mentioned, is an internal software process. Even though I'm marketing the software from an accounting perspective, marketing means like selling or transferring possession of the software for the customer to use. Marketing from an accounting perspective doesn't mean market use or the right to access it, which is a service. So that's probably the first tricky part you have when navigating the scope. Yes, okay. it's definitely not what I was thinking of when Angela mentioned that. So I think it's good that you clarified. Right. And so then the second um, thing customers do is, okay, once you figure out if I'm marketing or I am selling via a service or internal, I've got to then apply the standard to how I develop today. Both models, the external model and internal model, while they're different, they're similar in that they are predicated on a development process that has phases. So I'm going to plan, and then after I plan, I'm going to code and build, and after I build, I'm going to test, and there's a very, mm -hmm. a very linear phased process. And then they're also predicated on software companies doing one program at a time. So we're going to take a program mm -hmm. and we're going to have a plan and then we're going to code. Today, that's not how software is developed. Oftentimes, companies work on a bit of functionality, see if they can get the bit of functionality to work, and then try to figure out, what am I going to use it for? Am I going to, is this going to be something that's useful? Um, Oftentimes, if they have an idea, I think I want this type of software. I want an email type of software. Mm -hmm. But I'm going to have three teams work on three different types and eventually pick one and use back and forth of some of the functionality or not. So when they try to apply or when a vendor tries to apply this a linear phased approach standard to that type of development, it's difficult. <laughs> and so... <laughs> You wind up either saying, well, maybe not much is probable until very end, yeah. or maybe I've finished planning and everything's building, and then I capitalize until I abandon, and that's sort of an odd economic circumstance where I'm going to capitalize knowing I'm going to abandon most of it. And so part of that's the reason for, hey, can we update the guidance to match a little closer to how we're developing? All right. Well, I want to come back to the project, but in the meantime, maybe we should talk about the buyer. So Angela, how does the buyer think about this? Yeah. So by, uh, a buyer of software or software products also has to assess what they're buying. Are they buying a software product or are they buying a service, which is similar to what Mike described? And one of the key things you look at there is whether you have the right to take possession of the software. So if you do have a right to take possession of the software, then you're buying a software asset and you generally account for that as an acquired intangible asset. But if you're not 
buying, you're taking possession of the software, then you're typically buying a service. You're buying SaaS. And in this case, you're not purchasing an asset. However, as I mentioned earlier, the related cost to implement that SaaS might qualify for capitalization. And then one of the implications that comes up here is, and why it's important to assess what you're buying is presentation of these costs, right? Because if you're buying an asset that's a capital expenditure, it's an investing cash flow, and day two, you're going to amortize that asset and you're going to record amortization or depreciation, right? But if you're buying a service, that's an operating expense, that's an operating cash flow. If you end up capitalizing any cost because you're either prepaying for the service or you've got implementation costs that are capitalized, the day two accounting is not amortization or depreciation. It's actually recorded in the same line item where you record Mm. the service cost. So that's very different presentation of those costs. And that can sometimes be a surprise if someone hasn't, if a company hasn't fully thought through what they're actually buying in this, um, in this transaction. And are we seeing a lot more than of these SaaS arrangements now relative to even a few years ago, or we still do see some of the traditional arrangements? I think it's a continuing trend to people of moving to SaaS, but I guess you do see some of both. All right. So then definitely, uh, I think you guys did a good job highlighting why this accounting, it may be helpful to address the accounting in this area. So what is the status of the FASB project? Okay, well, the the FASB added the project to their agenda about a year ago, and its stated purpose is to modernize, and for those in the audience, I'm using air (laughs) air quotes around modernize, but to modernize the accounting for software, which basically is to make it more responsive to how software is developed today, but also trying to learn not to map it exactly to how Mm -hmm. it's developed today, because what we know is it may be developed differently in the future and we don't want to be back here again doing the same thing. So you want to try to make it um, responsive to the accounting today and what might be done in the future. Uh, Since they've taken the project on, the FASB staff has done outreach and has been exploring a few different paths, including expensing all costs, uh, keeping the current dual model they've had and tweaking that a bit, or moving to a single model. Um, in early April of this year, the FASB decided to pursue a single model for cost for all software. So no more of the external versus intel, internal, but one model to apply. And you mentioned that was in contrast expensing all costs. Would this single model still include some amount of capitalization? Or it's, I mean, obviously too soon to really tell, but any indicators? Yeah, so the single model's thrust is to have um, a threshold during uh, a point in the development where it's probable a software asset's going to be created. And at uh, the point where you cross that threshold is when you then start capitalizing costs. So the question is going to be, well, where is that threshold? Is it going to happen earlier? Is it going to happen later? Is it going to depend upon your stage of development, the type of product you're developing? So it might not be one answer for everybody. Mm -hmm. Um, They'll probably have factors as to when somebody crosses that threshold. Mm -hmm. And again, it may be different if it's a mature product or an immature product. So there may be differences along the way as well. So then, Mike, who do you think will be most impacted by this movement to this new model? Yeah, so I, I think 
the, the way the FASB is currently thinking is the software buyer in most cases buys it for its internal use in most cases. So the new model, the single model is more closely aligned with the current internal mm -hmm. guidance. So there's a view that current internal guidance, the people who apply that guidance won't change very drastically. The bigger change is going to be for the software vendors or the companies that apply the external software guidance model. That's where the bigger change is going. Although I would guess that there are definitely software developers that are applying both of these models. So just having one model seems like a big benefit. There. Yes. Yeah. And then the change there, again, Angela mentioned this earlier, that with the way the external model is applied, most companies reach that technological mm. feasibility point, that threshold point very late in the game and don't capitalize. So the big change here might be now capitalizing something or more than nothing that is done today yeah. for that group. Well, and so, and I know it's way too soon to tell, so this would just be from observation, but any sense if people are welcoming the direction of this or it's really too hard to tell until we see an exposure draft? Um, I, I, I think conceptually um, companies like the idea of having one yeah. conceptually. Um, but what's interesting is once you say, oh, conceptually, I like the idea of having one, they're very different views of what the outcome of that one should be. <laughs> Some <laughs> folks think, hey, yeah, we should have one, but the nature of software is more R&D-like in how it's developed because you're trying to explore yes. what happens. You're trying to figure out what product am I going to then try to sell. And by the time I figured it out, I've also made it. I don't have to then manufacture something. The development process has yielded something I can sell. So some companies believe, hey, that's more like R&D. We shouldn't have a lot capitalized. Others say, well, software is unique in that as I'm developing it, I'm producing it. So maybe I should have a slant of I'm really producing something mm. because that's my goal is to produce something. It's not to explore something. Software is very unique in that you're doing the exploration and the building at the same time. So yeah, one is great, but some folks like one meaning expensive because right. it's like R&D. Some folks, one meaning I've got assets yeah. <laughs> to capitalize. <laughs> so they call lesser on, oh, one's good but very different on the outcome of that one. Yeah, well, it's interesting because I think even early on, there was support for expense all under the idea that software development mm -hmm. is more like R&D. But then when you try to apply that as a single model, then it was like, oh, but if you buy software from someone, then you need to expense it. Yeah. And that didn't sound like the right answer, right? So that was where it got really difficult to to get to a single like view on what that what that model should be for all software. Yeah, that's definitely a helpful context. So then obviously more to come on this, but what are some of the key things they're still discussing and do we have any sense of timing? Yeah, so from a discussion per, you know, the things that they're thinking about, they're still building out what the unit of account is. Mm -hmm. Right? Uh, is it a program? Is it a project? Is it a nugget of yeah. functionality? So, at what level are we looking at what to capitalize? They're still working on that threshold of probability. Um, 
maintenance, right? So PCS, post-customer mm-hmm. contract support, right? The upgrades and enhancements, if they were done as part of the core development, one might capitalize them if they're done after. Are they cap? Are they adding functionality? Is they continuing to keep the functionality? So we'll have to work through what, how to account for maintenance, um, amortization, and impairment. In, there's two different models now. There's an inventory model for external and a fixed asset model for internal. So if we make it one, and I'm selling software externally. Do I apply a fixed asset style impairment or am I going to have to have two different impairment rules? So I'm going to have to work through that. Obviously, presentation and disclosure gets talked about often. So to see if, if we have more capitalized, if that's where it winds up going to then provide proper disclosure for what's capitalized or even if we've got to more expense disclosure mm-hmm. on what the spending was. So all of those things are being worked on now. As far as a sense of timing, nothing has been offered up. They're working very diligently on the project, and I'm sure they would love to have something by the end of the year. Maybe we can hope for an exposure draft by the end of the year, but this is a difficult project with still a lot of work to come. So that would really be more of a hope than an expectation. And we'll have to see how that goes because, I mean, obviously the FASB has a lot of other projects that they're Mm -hmm. prioritizing right now, including income tax disclosures and segments and other projects that we've talked about. So, um, you know, again, I think they're aiming to try to get as much done by the end of the year, but we'll see if they get to exposure draft um, in that time. All right. Well, it sounds like this is uh, people are going to welcome seeing what the result of all of this is. So something to watch for over the remainder of the year. So in the meantime, though, we still have companies dealing with this topic. So what advice would you give someone if they are trying to figure out the accounting for one of these types of arrangements? And maybe Angela, starting with you. Right. So we are going to be living with the current guidance for a while. And I mean, going back to this trend that we're talking about from transitioning from on-prem to SaaS, from the point of view of both a vendor and a customer, you really need to make sure that you're understanding the impact of that on the accounting for the related costs. And this is really important to avoid last minute surprises, which is, I think, something I always say as part of our final advice. (laughs) Um, And again, it kind of goes back to like, you might think that you're going to have a capital expenditure and then it turns out what you're buying is really a service. And so that has an impact on how you're budgeting for those costs. It has an impact on key performance measures like EBITDA or cash flow measures, because it's going to look different if you're um, you know, buying an asset like a software asset versus buying a service. So just something that I would, you know, emphasize to continue to to think about. Um, and I'd point out for more information on the current model, we have an entire software cost guide that uh, people can go to for reference. Okay, very helpful. Mike, how about from your point of view? I think companies should pay close attention to where this one goes as it progresses and consider whether providing feedback when the time comes makes any sense. All right. Angela, Mike, this is a great topic and definitely very insightful. So thanks so much for joining me today. Sure thing. Happy to be here. That's our show for today. Tune in next week for more fresh episodes so that you never miss any of our audio content. Follow the PwC Accounting Podcast wherever you listen to your podcasts. 
And to stay up to date on all our latest accounting and reporting news, sign up for our newsletter at viewpoint.pwc.com. From Thought Leadership at PwC, I'm Heather Horn. Thanks for tuning in. This podcast is brought to you by PwC, all rights reserved. PwC refers to the U.S. member firm or one of its subsidiaries or affiliates, and they sometimes refer to the PwC network. Each member firm is a separate legal entity. Please see www.pwc.com structure for further details. This podcast is for general information purposes only and should not be used as a substitute for consultation with professional advisors.